um, they were on the nest and they had like a deficiency for like a couple days. Maybe it was a bad storm or something. They couldn't get out or parents couldn't get out to get the food to feed them. Um, there'll actually be a fault bar that'll go like all the way across their tail. Hey everyone. Thank you for tuning into Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We're a couple of bird brains looking for adventure and some birds. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we bring you this podcast to share our adventures with you and talk about random thoughts on other birding topics. Just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts, and if we discuss any controversial material, we hope you keep an open mind. But also remember, what we discuss, it's our own opinions. In this episode, we're going to talk about our last birding trip we took while living down in Florida. Now we're coming to you live from Cannon Beach, Oregon. Um, We went out to the Jekyll Island Banding Station up on Jekyll Island in in Georgia with the Duval Audubon for the day. Um, We're also going to talk about our drive across the country and all the birds we saw or we didn't really see. Um, So, any birding news this week? Uh, Yeah, some things. Uh, Golden Crown Warbler, which is a code four, has been seen hanging around in South Texas. It looks like it was last seen on October 21st, which I really hope it's refound because we're going that way soon and I really want to see it. Yep, fingers crossed. Um, There's a wren that I don't know how to pronounce that, do you? Sinaloa? Sinaloa. (laughs) Wren. It's a code five. (laughs) It's been seen in Arizona. Um, then a bird that I don't really want to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> a double-toothed kite uh, that was seen in Hernando County in in Florida. And this is a Code 5, and this is actually the second time it's been seen in the ABA area. The first time it was seen in Texas. Um, what's, what's Hernando County? Is that like an hour and a half from where we were at? Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's like halfway to Tampa. Yeah. Ugh. So, cool. <laughs> However, it was not refound after the first sighting, so I guess it... It didn't really matter whether or not we lived in Florida. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. So, really exciting, though. Um, also in Florida, so you guys are just welcome, you know, that we moved away. So, all these cool things could show up because I think we're bad luck or something yeah, at this ter- point. We're terrible luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a European robin. It was Code 5, and it was found in Broward County. And then a Key West quail dove, which is Code 5 also, was seen in Palm Beach. So... You're welcome. We left. You got good birds. Other than some super crazy codes, there's been a handful of other oddities in state firsts. Ohio had its first gray kingbird. South Carolina, its first tropical kingbird. Um, so other fl- forktail flycatchers have been seen. Uh, they've had like a crazy dispersal this year with several showing up in Canada, Texas, a couple other places. Yeah, so, one, the one in Texas, there's one down in the Rio Grande Valley. So fingers crossed it's still there for the <laughs> festival too. Yeah, right. So some crazy <laughs> things flying around. Yeah. Oh, we have a new review. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a review the other day from P. Kleinhens, who says that this podcast is the right stuff. Um, as an avid birder and adventurer, he appreciates the focus not just on birds, but on the search itself. That's the joy of birding, and he says we showcase that well in this podcast. So awesome. Thank you so much, P. Kleinhens, and guys, keep it coming. It it boosts our spirit and our morale. <laughs> <laughs> keeps yeah. us going. Keeps us keeps us actually recording. <laughs> Makes us feel like someone's listening. <laughs> um, so the last weekend that we were living in Florida, we really only had one last weekend to be able to do anything. And so we really had to make it a good one. 
Yeah, and we saw on Facebook that the Duval Audubon chapter and Duval County is uh, on the east side of Florida. It's yeah. um, I think Nassau County is the furthest north, and then Duval might be the one. Yeah, just, it's like Jacksonville, just south area. of that. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of folks that are part of that chapter, which is really cool. And they were hosting a field trip up to Jekyll Island in Georgia for a banding exhibition. And what could be better than a banding trip for our last hoorah oh, yeah. in Florida? Yeah, so, something big and extravagant and exciting. <laughs> something we don't get to do all the time. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we've talked about doing um, different events with Audubon chapters uh, in the past and how Audubon chapters around the country, they host field trips and how... They're fantastically welcoming and amazing towards uh, newcomers. Yeah, and this field trip was no exception. Um, we emailed the contact, Andrew, first to make sure we were good to go, that they could expect us, and we got all the information we needed. Because we haven't traveled with this Audubon group before, so we don't really know how it functions. Yeah, we kind of wanted to introduce ourselves through email so that they knew we were coming, and it wasn't going to be like, who the heck are you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and also before leaving the South, I wanted to spend some more time at Jekyll Island. We had visited it in May, and I thought it was just an incredible place. The whole town is basically a resort. There's miles of beaches, several restaurants, camping, and a few hotels. It's just a really idyllic vacation spot. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely just vacations in general, not just nature vacations. Um, but looking at the Jekyll Island website, it says the island is a state park. The whole thing's a state park. It uses buzz phrases like a coastal haven, ah. nature and humans peacefully coexist, Ooh. lavish lawn <laughs> parties, ancient maritime forest, and then it used some pretty pretty scary imagery, some terrifying imagery uh, like driftwood skeletons that will be forever etched in your memory. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's an interesting phrase to it's use. It's haunting. Fortunately, at this point, we haven't had any skeletons etched into our memory so far. Yeah, but, so far. You know, there's always time. Yeah, it's an interesting place. I mean, it was it was pretty naturey out there, but there is a pretty significant toll to get out there. I guess it's uh, it's like five or six dollars. Yeah, think, or and maybe it's, seven. It's for parking on the island or something. It's not really it's like a, a toll. Day pass to yeah. get on the island. Yeah, and it's it's right before you go down the really long entrance road that's super flat and goes right through the middle of a tidal marsh. And when we had visited before in May, um, that road had lots of terrapins attempting to cross the road, which is really cool. We've never seen terrapins before no, until then. First time seeing terrapins. Yeah, and they were like designated terrapin savers because they were they were going across the road and like the speed limit's not really high. I think what like thirty or forty five or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember, but it's. It's fast enough that, that you, you would could, hit one. You, you could hit one and it would be an issue. Yeah. So they had like rangers or city workers or volunteers. I don't know what they were. Yeah. Um, I think one was a policeman. Yeah, one was a police officer that that just like flipped around real quick and turned on his lights to go like to go save one. To, to go save one. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they they drive up and down that road and help the terrapins cross safely and so they don't get hit. Yeah, and that, and that was that was all back in back in the springtime. Yeah, not, we didn't see any this time. Not not this time, yeah. Um, but um, Jekyll Island, it's definitely worth a stop. It's a gorgeous place on the southern Georgia coast. Um, definitely worth stopping there if you ever have any like extra time, or even if you don't have extra time, you can make some extra time to go stop there. Um, so we got there after work. We we left Tallahassee after work and didn't get there till it was like ten thirty. No, night. it was like nine. Oh, anyways, it was late. It was I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do anything. So pretty much the only thing left to do is get some dinner and go to bed early. And a really weird coincidence 
is the um, resort that we stayed in. It's like staying in like someone's condo that they're renting out, I guess. Yeah, but the weird thing about it was that it had specific decor. So like like Eric said, it's somebody's condo, but it's decorated how the owners would want it. Yeah. And so they must have been a birder or a naturalist, which is crazy. Um, Eric noticed some decor on the wall that had shelves and it had uh, species identified by common and Latin names. And then I noticed in the bookshelf there were like 20 Tom Clancy books At or least something 20. like that. <laughs> and a huge old bird ID book, which I collect bird ID books, and I really contemplated stealing it for my collection. No. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. But then um, I poked around a little bit more in the condo, and I noticed that there was a frame checklist that the owners had stashed away that had their sightings from some year from that condo. Yeah, so that's crazy. It was, yeah, just a weird coincidence. Um, I found an old guest book in it. Like, it, 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 I felt like... The, the TV show, The Guest Book. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like staying there. Um, Except for that it was like a condo, not like the giant fancy lodge from the TV yeah, show. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> but it was just like a weird thing. And yeah. it made me want to write in The Guest Book, which I've never done before. Yeah. Um, and it, it hadn't been written in 2003. So I made an entry, you know, 15 years after the last one. But it was, it was really cool. It was kind of like a... Um, I don't know, a little serendipity? hint for the, yeah, serendipity, but a little hint for the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, and so so the next morning we got we got nice and rested. Bed was comfortable. It was nice. <laughs> but we got nice and rested, got up the next morning, uh, ready to go banding, but the first thing we had to do was find some coffee. And the only thing we could find anywhere open was the gas station right as you come on the island. So, be warned if you want to wake up early, you got to go to the gas station to get coffee. Seriously, it was like six thirty, like not that early. And That's that not people, that early. Yeah. No, especially for like fishermen, because I imagine they get a lot of fishermen. Oh, out they there. Got, there was fishermen at the gas station. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, and nothing else was open in town. So, like, where's the old diner that all the old guys sit at the counter at five o'clock in the morning and don't talk to each other? Like, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't every town have one of those? Like, I, like I, a donut shop. It's a small town. It should. I would. I would think so. But I guess just being a resort town. Well, anyways, be warned, yeah. bring your own coffee. Yeah, bring your own coffee or just get some gas station coffee. Um, so we arrived at the meeting point uh, to meet up with the rest of the gang. Um, one thing that I did want to mention is the amazing, incredible, horrifying, <laughs> I'm not sure which, horse flies. Um, those suckers were flying around us everywhere and they sounded like helicopters <laughs> or bats or something. I don't know. They were huge. And they were completely black. And it was kind of terrifying. Yeah. So we Googled it for you and found out they're black horse flies. But, like, you should Google it, too, to see the horror of these things. They, like, like look into your soul. Like, it's, we've it's seen terrifying. horse flies before. Like, in Florida, there's horse flies. Texas, where we lived, there were horse flies. But these were, like, pure black, which I've never seen before. Like, at first, when I saw one landed, I kind of thought it was, like, a moth. It's, it's like, as big as a moth. Yeah. yeah. And then when it was flying around us, it was, like... Around you, and like it sounded like a bat. It was it was horrible. Yeah. So there was horse. There was a couple horse flies. I don't like um, horse flies, by the way, <laughs> or deer flies. Yeah. So so there's horse flies around, um, but Andrew was there too, and a, and a couple of the other people that had arrived early. Um, uh, Andrew was the field trip leader uh, for the day from the Duval Autobahn. Um, we met up with everyone and then headed back into the area. Um, that's kind of a closed off area of dunes. Um, it's closed for public access because uh, they're doing some restoration back up in that area. 
Yeah, so the spot is at the very southern tip of Jekyll Island. Um, it's aptly named the Jekyll Island Banding Station. Uh, so we were right on the Jekyll Sound, which is at the confluence between Fancy Bluff Creek and the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, the Jekyll Island uh, Banding Station, called Jibs for short, um, they they fundraise for by selling shirts that are kind of cool shirts. I wish we had some cash then so we could have yeah, right. bought some. Um, but s- selling some shirts that says Jibs, Jekyll Island Banding Station, um, they accept donations and they have, uh, these little cool 3D, pr- 3D printed painted bunting puzzles that you just like put together and it's like little flat pieces of plastic that fit together into a puzzle. It's it pretty cool. Yeah, it was real cute. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll they, talk a little bit more about Jibs in a few minutes. Yeah, and they, they, they sell all that stuff so they, yeah. can, so they can fund their, uh, nets and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, the group wound through some dunal areas and along a rickety boardwalk to reach the banding station. Um, it had already had a tent set up for, you know, some protection since it's, it's, it was September in Georgia, so still pretty warm and had all the materials there. Um, fortunately they are able to keep their nets up and supplies as it's a restricted area. They open them in the morning and close them in the evening, but they're able to keep the, the setup all together, which is cool. Yeah, which for those of you who haven't attended any banding sessions before, opening and closing the nets is very time consuming and it's made even more time consuming if you have to do all the setup, not just opening and closing. So um, the days typically start um, in the dark with a headlamp before sunrise, um, putting them all together and then disassembling them at the end of the day, which you're already tired from the whole day of being mm-hmm. out in the sun. You yeah. don't want to do that. So it, it really saves some time that they're able to leave theirs up and just open and close them. So, so far we've been to several different banding setups. Um, we went to Lucky Peak in Boise, mm-hmm. Quinta Mazatlan in McAllen, Texas, uh, Lotus Lake, which is just outside of Orlando and now Jekyll Island. Wow. So we've done bird banding in four different states. Yeah, That's I funny. guess so. <laughs> um, so all I'm sure there's plenty of you guys who have done many more. But yeah, all over the country probably. It's <laughs> exciting for us. Um, and all of the ones that we visited have had different methods depending on the audience and location. So who they're looking to have out to their banding station, whether it's just a researcher or if they're looking to have an audience, um, you know, just the general public or other birders. And also location versus, you know, private land versus public land sort of situation. Yeah, so the the first place that we ever banded at, uh, Lucky Peak, it, it was an intensive survey. It was similar to um, the way Jibs has their setup, where all they had to do was open and close the nets at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And they had quite a few volunteers and uh, surveyors that were camped right by, so they didn't have to worry about uh, trying to protect and not have their stuff stolen. And it was also a restricted area, so it was really difficult to get to. Um, people wouldn't stumble upon it unknowingly and so the nets were always up and all they had to do was open and close them it was it made it really easy for them also if you haven't attended their hawk identification course through the intermountain bird observatory you absolutely should it was it was phenomenal and we were we were brand new birders when we when we went to it and it was super super educational i think anyone at any level would really enjoy and get something out of their uh, their hawk identification course. Yeah, we went in 2012, um, and it's like a three day course, like a three day weekend. Yeah, and like we just we learned so much about hawks and just about like birding in general. And it's really cool because Lucky Peak up where they band is like 
like we said, it's a very difficult place to get to. Like, they took us in a, I think it was a van, wasn't it? Like yeah, a passenger it was a van. van? Yeah. And it was only like four miles, but it took us like an hour because the terrain was so rough. Oh, yeah. It was just back and forth over the big, huge washouts and stuff like that. It was, it was pretty cool. But, um, the, the, those, those days at that hawk identification course, they did a little bit of in class first thing in the morning because the hawks don't start lifting off till a little later in the afternoon. So you do a little bit of in, in classroom and then you hop out and do, do some, uh, in the field observation, which, that was that was super super useful. Yeah, and Boise is just a cool place to go to. A little off topic, but that was <laughs> it was something good to go to. Well, and so that's one um, method. And then Eric also banded with Mark Conway in the Rio Grande Valley more than I did. I went out once. He went out a couple times, but the time I attended was at Quinta Mazalon McAllen, um, and it was when the facility is close to the public, so you didn't have public folks walking around, but it's still a public location. So his operation is pretty mobile. He has to set it up and tear down the nets every day that he bans. Um, so they're not, you know, ruined by the public if anybody ends up walking through. Oh yeah. So a really large portion or a large responsibility of the volunteers with, uh, with Mark when we're out there is setting up and tearing down the nets. Cause he has to set out the anchors. He has to set out, drive his stakes, do, do, do everything to get himself set up. To start banding, and then he can start ca- capturing birds. So a lot of that's all done in the dark, when it's you, you can't see much, and you're trying to get it done before before the sunrise and before it gets too hot for the birds. Um, but then, so he, his was really intense. And then the, one of the other locations we've done at Lake Lotus, it was really really about the halfway point in between those. Uh, with Andrew Boyle, he he was able to leave his anchor points up each day, but he would just take his nets down. So it's just bringing bags of nets and setting those up. But he also only bans during the weekends. Yeah, so there's different different methods for everyone. Yeah. Well, and I guess we should have started off with what banding is because yeah. not everybody who <laughs> listens, I've, not everybody's going to know what that is. Uh, but bird banding, it's a type of wildlife survey in which you safely capture wild birds in a mist net, M-I-S-T, mist net. Um, it's a very thin and lightweight net. And the goal of this is so that the birds cannot see the net. It's so thin that, you know, flying really fast, like like chickadees do, yeah. you know, they're not going to see it. So then they're placed in between bushes and trees that you might expect that the birds might be traveling through from place to place um, on their regular routes. Yeah, and as the bird flies through the area from one bush to another, they won't see the net, hit the net, and then fall into the pocket. That the, Just because of the way the net's hanging, it creates a couple of pockets in it. And then the surveyors, they go and check the nets on a regular basis to see see what sort of goodies have shown up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if they find a bird in the net, next comes a very delicate procedure in which you attempt to extract the bird from the net. And this can be difficult as sometimes the birds tend to wrap themselves up in the net and they're fighting as they're trying as they're in the net because, oh, yeah. you know, you're, they're you're, captured. You're just like a predator. You're, yeah. You're huge. Exactly. They're trying to get away. Yeah. So they're, they're fighting um, and you're trying to pull them out ca- very carefully without ripping the net and without injuring the bird. Yeah. And after the bird is finally out of the net, you carefully put it into a small pouch. I, th- I think they usually use like a little cotton pouch or like a pillowcase. It's like almost a, like a, uh, or, yeah, like a pillowcase or like a sunglasses case. Yeah. But it's, it's real small usually. But um, it's just to protect the bird and keep it in one place so it doesn't fly away yes it doesn't fly away and so it's back to the bander with the bird in your fingers yeah trying to hold a band 
hold a bird without is escaping yeah um but once once the bander has the bird they then reach in and carefully take it out and start um, taking measurements and placing a band on the bird yeah so these measurements um well first off they identify the bird because you want to know what it is um and then they take measurements like fat age wing length uh total mass uh tail length sex of of the bird and these are some of the typical ones however um, if you are banding for specific research purposes, like if a you know college professor is looking for something specific, they might be measuring something different. Well, that's I, I believe in the Rio Grande Valley, Mark Conway was trying to separate out a subspecies of seaside sparrow to be some like Laguna Atascosa seaside sparrow or something. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to measure differences in primary wing length or something like that. There is. There was something very specific he was measuring in addition to the normal things like the mass and the fat and all that. Yeah, and so they're going to get all of those other information, data points, because it all goes into a big database. And, but they will, yeah, so they'll get those those typical ones, like, yeah. you know, the fat and all that. And then you might add in a couple more depending on what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, for their specific research or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, the first, absolute first, first thing that the... Bander usually does from everyone that I've I've been with and everyone that I've volunteered with is they put a band on the bird immediately before before they do any measurements just in case the bird escapes then it's at least got the band on and they know <laughs> they know the species and sometimes they'll know the age real quickly right off the bat and sex and and sex pretty pretty quickly too and so they, they get that band on there so that if anything happens, they at least have that minimum information because <laughs> that's the worst. You get a bird and then it escapes and you have nothing. So now you put the bird through all that stress for absolutely no benefit to anything. And there's several different types of bands um, depending on the type of bird and the size that the bird the bird is. But typically they're made from aluminum. And sometimes they're colored too. Oh yeah, D- on different colors and stuff. Yeah, depending on the research project. And hilariously, northern cardinal bands have to be made from stainless steel because they just beat the crap out of them. Like northern cardinals, like have to be like <laughs> one of the most rough and tumble birds. I know they're always beating each other up. Uh, and I'm sure there's other birds that are in that category too. Oh, I'm sure, but yeah. that's the one I always hear about. It's like northern cardinals have a specific band because they are. Because they're mean. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. Yeah, they're, they're mean. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Uh, I don't think they have feelings. <laughs> and if you ever find a bird that has a band, um, there's a way to report it as well. So if you find a dead bird or, you know, an injured bird or something like that, you can go on the, you can just type in report bird band and uh, there's a form for doing that. And I guess you get to keep the band afterwards, which would be kind of, kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and each band that's placed has a unique number that's later entered into that database. That way someone can look it up. Um, and when you, when they look it up, it'll have information like baseball stats on the bird. So it'll have, uh, have all the information, any other banders that have ever done it. And so if another bander catches that bird... That's also called a recapture. Uh, they can then compare the stats of the bird and see how it's doing compared to how it was doing the last time it was caught. And banding is something that's been going on for many, many years. Oh, yeah. And it's something that has greatly influenced what we know about birds. We've been able to look at their migration routes through this. And, you know, it's led to advances in migratory bird research. And we placed the little, um, oh, what are those called? The little, uh, 
electronic guys that like ping back and forth and i wish i could remember the, the word. tracking devices yeah some tracking devices <laughs> yeah. uh but it's, there's a word for it <laughs> i'm sure there is somebody please correct us uh but it's it's led to so many advances in what we know about birds and and where they go that well and also eight ages of birds been able to find mm-hmm. like how old a bird is because you could you that you can usually get if it's a hatch year or if it's after hatch year and then some some species you can get a couple couple things depending on their molts but from that, if you continue catching the exact same band for 15 years, that bird's at least 15 years old. Well, and you know, like, if you band at the same place, you know that that bird that, returns every single to year. To the same exact place, yeah. Yeah. So, there's a lot of cool stuff about it. Oh, yeah. Um, anyways, so, banders, they might also take a picture of the bird for biological purposes, some for educational purposes, some just for Facebook. Uh, but they take a picture, and then the bird is released out to continue on with its life. With a new piece of jewelry. <laughs> Uh, anyways, getting on with the actual session, uh, as we mentioned, we attended with the Duval Audubon Society. There were also some banding helpers. There was a grad student and people from the local 4-H camp that attended. It ended up being about like 35 folks that had filtered through the morning, which was a huge number. I yeah, that's, I think that's the largest group that I've seen on like a smaller banding place any other time. Yeah, it was a great turnout. Yeah. Yeah, Evan, um, was he was the master bander for the day. Um, he's the one you heard in the intro telling us about fault lines and feathers. He also mentions Walmart clothes. Yeah. Um, he he used uh, that phrase to it's say... It's like an analogy. Yeah. Uh, to say that the bird's feathers don't quite, like, fit. Like, they're not, like, fitted clothes. It's just, like, you know, something you'd pick up at Walmart. Off the rack at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a phrase. Yeah. Um, he, he and his wife, um, they lead the banding on the weekends um, at Jibs. And then there's there's another gentleman. I wish I can remember his name. I think it's Charlie. Is Charlie? That was I think his name? so. But um, he he does the um, banding on the weekdays um, because both uh, both Evan and his wife both have full time jobs in, in Atlanta, Atlanta. <laughs> which is a good drive away from uh, Jekyll Island. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what exactly Evan did. It's, it's it sounded kind of complicated with the construction trade doing asphalt testing for testing um, like longevity or cure times with asphalt yeah something like that so, so, something like that and on the weekends he's a bander that sounds like your dream life playing with big toys on the weekends and playing with the birds on the weekdays reverse the that. Other way around yeah, Maybe. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll play with the birds on the week weekdays that's fine <laughs> you guys got it <laughs> yeah um yeah so evan evan told us um about kind of a little bit of history of the station that it's been open for about 40 years um and he and his father or that First, his father was managing it, um, and then he learned everything he knows from his from his dad. I think he said his uncle too, maybe. I don't know. I, I can't remember, but at least at least his father um, was managing it. And he learned, and then about ten years ago, was it ten years ago? His father had run it for ten his years, run? and then he took it over. Afterwards. There we go. I don't I don't know how long he'd been running it. There we go. So his father had run it for ten years, and then now he's been he's been running it uh, since, I guess. Um, and the reason for for banding here is just to increase the data of migrating birds over the long term. So this is this is a really long forty years is a long time to be gathering data at one specific site. He said it was one of the longest. I don't know if it was the in just in Georgia or if it was the whole U.S. But... I don't know. It sounds really long though. Oh yeah, forty I think years. So. That's a long time. That's a long time to get some migration data yeah. on what's going through there. And they only bird. Or, I'm sorry. They only banded this location during fall migration, and it's every day for a month from the end of September to the end of October. So it's a pretty good time frame. 
and they they do pretty much only fall migration because the birds because just because of the topography of the area the birds have to stop there to fatten up before going over the sound um they don't really do that in the spring migration because they just come over water so there's plenty of the rest of the island for them to kind of disperse disperse across so it's not like a little um confluence on the land i guess a little spot yeah um yeah so now that we got some of the background covered let's set the scene we're standing at the edge of the sound in a dune landscape early in the morning there's lots of sand scrubby trees bushes around there's a brown thrasher calling to one side and laughing gulls calling in the distance on the other and and due to the dunes protecting this area there's very little wind and it's hot I, I hope this is the last time we talk about being hot in a podcast. Yeah, maybe we'll start talking about being cold. I'm already cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we can't remember exactly how many nets there were because we heard a lot of varying numbers. Yeah, I they, say they, they there talked was about like years nine, back. And... They said there was up to like 27, I think. Is that, the big, is that the high number? I feel like it is. Yeah. That's a lot of nets. But 27 nets. When we were there, I think maybe like there's between 9 and 16. <laughs> good nine or 16 that's a, yeah. that's a good guess i think yeah um but moving between the nets uh we you know it takes a little time and we really built up our calf muscles walking on the sand i think mine are still sore um but we would move through in 30 minute rotations yeah so they they had determined um 30 minutes was about as long as they wanted to wait just because of the heat um the birds are sitting if 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 a bird had been captured, it's sitting in the heat, not able to cool itself. So they want you want to get the bird out of the net as fast as you can, but you also want to leave the nets alone so that the birds fly by it. It's kind of, it's kind of you're you're walking a fine line between the safety of the birds, getting it out as quickly as possible, and not being near the net so that the birds actually go into the net. Yeah, so they're not scared off. Oh yeah, and that's one of the key things about bird banding is safety of yeah. the birds. That's number like one. the number one thing that everyone will talk about. So. 30 minutes was the optimum interval for, like, Eric For said. this area here. Yeah, for that location. Some places it's longer if it's cooler, and some places it's going to be shorter if it's really, if it's a lot hotter. So, it was about 8.30 when we netted our first bird, which ended up being a Carolina wren. Um, Evan did a great job of explaining why he was taking certain measurements, what he was doing throughout the banding session, and he even allowed people to get up close and take some pictures without overstressing the bird. Yeah. Um, he, he encouraged participation. I thought this was really cool by asking people to document in the notebook. I know a lot of banders, they have a specific method that they go through and they have an assistant that usually documents Mm -hmm. in there, but he was asking the, everybody else to help him out with that. And so they were, you know, there were people there learning what the four, um, four letter code was. The four letter banding codes. Yeah. yeah. That had never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they had to figure out where in the, the note sheet went certain data points but which isn't a big deal but i thought that was cool that he asked people to help him out with it oh yeah 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 so so some of the other birds that we caught throughout the day um a couple common yellow throats uh uh northern water thrush and then the last one before we left was a female painted bunting that was that was super exciting and then we kind of got everyone all jazzed about it as we were coming back saying we got a painted bunting and they were asking well is it is it green or is it colorful? <laughs> it's like, uh, it's a green one. <laughs> it's a female, or or a juvenile, I guess. But um, I can't I can't remember what what it ended up being. I think it ended up being a female. A female, okay. I think so. Yeah, but um, a lot of times, I guess a lot of times, sometimes, I don't know. Banding is basically 
turns into a lot of sitting and waiting for birds. Waiting for birds and then going and checking the nets. And then followed by a flurry of activity if you got something. Um, but we haven't really been to any bird banding sessions where it's just crazy catching birds after birds after birds. And you have 15 or 20 birds waiting to be processed. We haven't been to anything like that yet. No. Which, that would be kind of cool to go somewhere like that. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, but... Um, but so so far, we've, what we've been to have been good experiences where the banders are able to take their time, answer questions, and be able to get one-on-one with each of the birds and the, the volunteers and visitors that are there and help everyone learn, which which is really great for people that have never been and don't want to have to just stand out of the way mm-hmm. <laughs> as they're processing birds. Um, and we, we could also see how much other people were enjoying this, which that's that's like the number one reason I felt like enjoying that I, I was really enjoying this is being able to watch everyone get so excited about birds that they've never seen in the hand before yeah and a lot of them weren't even birders i'd yeah. say like the people from the 4-h club then i don't think they were birders yeah i don't know why they were out there i think they'd just gotten invited to oh come. is that what it was yeah okay oh yeah because they, came... they were right nearby yeah 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 and and there was also a grad student out there um and her face just lit up when she saw the birds up close it was really cool it was kind of like it's one of those where you get to have the experience with them because they're so excited about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Julie was talking about in our last podcast. Yeah. You know, she's seen an Anhinga so many times. And then when somebody else comes to Florida that's never seen one, you know, it's it's like seeing it again for the first time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because you get to experience that with them. And that's part of the joy of bird watching for us, at least. Not yeah. everybody <laughs> likes that part. <laughs> I know so many people who don't want to bird with beginners. Um, but that really is part of the joy of birding with beginners. Oh, yeah. And I like going to the banding sessions, too, because I feel like it's a really unique opportunity when you get to see birds up close. Like, we we always joke about um, golden front of woodpeckers and mm-hmm. how, you know, you don't even know that it has a golden front unless you have it in the hand. Like, there's a handful of birds that are named for what they looked like when somebody held it. Yeah. And they called it something. <laughs> like, like, like a ring-neck duck. Yeah. Like, a, the, the you can't see that in the field. That's not a field mark. That's a mark in the hand. That's yeah. That's not a mark in the field. Exactly. Yeah, so it's cool to be able to get up close and see these things. And, you know, knowing that we're not causing the bird, you know, any real harm. We're stressing them out for, like, half an hour. But then after that... It's, oh, it's not even really that long. It's, no. it's, it's usually real quick. It, usually. I'm just going with a long-term or yeah. long possibility. But being able to get up close with them and knowing how this contributes to the greater picture, I think it's just really, really cool. Yeah, so some of the some of the things that kind of get uh, complicated and stre- stressy about uh, banding is, uh, like, when, when I was in the Rio Grande Valley, there was uh, a Carolina wren that I was trying to extract from a net when I was volunteering down there. It had got its tongue twisted around the net. And that, that's that's something else. You don't normally get to see the tongue of most birds. I mean, like, maybe a goose if it's chasing you. Yeah, and it's got its tongue flapping around, <laughs> or whatever it does when it's yelling. I mean, we've both been bit by a oh goose, my gosh. haven't we? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't like when geese are mad at me. <laughs> That's all they are. Yeah, they're always That's mad. That's the only emotion. That's the only emotion <laughs> geese have. <laughs> mad. Yeah, so you don't normally get to see, see, see a bird's tongue, let alone to know that it's barbed. And that's the barb is where it gets a little hairy with the with the mist net and gets caught up and as that's that's the most stressed out I've ever been while doing things with birds is when that wren the little tiny wren had its tongue stuck in the net it was so stressful and then having uh, one of the other volunteers run over with a pair of scissors so we could carefully cut the net 
and get the bird extracted and unthread the net out of its tongue. It was, it was scary <laughs> and it was hot, but, but it was, the bird was okay. He did it. He did his thing. Um, but like, like Hannah said, bird health and safety is number one when we're doing this. We're, we're trying to, when, when you're out banding, you're trying to do it for scientific, for furthering scientific uh, knowledge, but bird health and safety is number one. You got to keep the bird safe because if you don't, you're going to get your permits pulled and you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah, and, and what's the point? What's the point? Yeah. If, if you're killing what you're trying to research, there's there's no point. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that experience is just so cool and it just shows oh, yeah. you why it's it's important and it's educational to go out and see that a bird's tongue has barbs on it. Yeah, barbed tongues. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a great time at Jibs and talking with Evan and all the other volunteers. I had a chance to talk with some of the volunteers while we were just sitting there waiting mm-hmm. for birds. And, you know, it was really fun to get to know him. And learning about Bandy in that area and just talking with Evan about himself and his family and the history of the station was just a lot of fun. So thanks to everyone that participated and put up with us and all our crazy questioning. Uh, if you're ever in the area during late September to late October, I definitely check it out. You can find them on Facebook and we think you should like them and, you know, s- support what they're doing because they're doing some really cool work out there or even your local bander. Yeah. Your local bander too. Yeah. If, if you, if you have one near you, send them an email. See <laughs> just, just thank them. Yeah. Just thank them. <laughs> Yeah, so um, just before our last episode of uh, of this, uh, Hannah and I drove across the entire country. <laughs> it was a long drive. Um, we re- relocated from Tallahassee, Florida, up to our home state of Oregon. Uh, so now we're out here in Cannon Beach on the on the coast, uh, northern Oregon coast, about uh, three thousand miles away from where we were <laughs> during the last episode yeah. or be- the episode before. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> And we did all of that driving in just four days. Four days, yeah. And <laughs> we did it just before Hurricane Michael, and so we got out right in time. And we hope yeah. everyone down there is okay. And we hope you guys all recover very quickly because that was a Terrifying. horrible storm. And yeah. I'm so, so thankful that we didn't didn't have to it. deal with it. Yeah, yeah. But bless you all that did. Um, but one of my favorite parts of the longest drive in my world, in my entire life with two cats <laughs> was that we were able to add a few more states to our eBird maps, which is something that we both really care yeah, about. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of exciting to add, add, fill out the map a little bit more. I mean, they weren't very good lists. They were driving lists for like two or three miles and we'd add like three or four birds. Whatever, whatever we saw on the highway, we'd make a little personal location couple birds and that's it so not 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 very exciting not very not very cool birds i guess i'm not sure very... the like e-bird reviewers in those areas hate us now maybe oh well we're we didn't we didn't do the hotspot dragging we didn't, we didn't use right. anchors by sites it was we did it by the books <laughs> kept kept our lists short um but i made like 30 lists across kansas yeah a lot <laughs> a lot a lot of lists a lot a lot of small lists showing different things in different places um but we colored in a little bit of the country um, we we're hoping to make a couple detours and visit a little bit of Maricana and some eBird hotspots, but we had a time crunch. <laughs> we, we weren't able to do that. Um, so I guess that'll have to just wait for, um, for our next, uh, grand American tour. I hope it's not for a while. I'm kind of tired of driving. It was a lot of driving. Yeah. Well, you just sat and rode the whole time. I drove the whole time. I was still stressed out. <laughs> 
Um, if you have ever had the chance to drive across America, uh, make sure, or if you ever do it, make sure not to do it during the fall. We had a heck of a time with weather. It rained all across Kansas. The entire state. The entire state. And it snowed through western Colorado, which I haven't seen snow for a while, so that was kind of fun. Yeah, it was kind of exciting to, to see snow from living living in the south like that. Yeah. Um, and then we also had a huge delay in Ogden, Utah. This had nothing to do with the time of year <laughs> at all. But there, there was um, a bunch of first responders uh, were trying to get a man with a gun under control. And he was just in the middle of the freeway. So um, whatever that what highway that was, 70, I 90? I have no idea. I don't know. The, the one that goes through Ogden. The one that goes north and south through uh, Salt Lake City and everything. That goes up to um, into Idaho. But... That whole giant freeway was shut down for like four hours or more. Yeah. So just, I, I guess that's yeah. the moral of the trip is like, things will never go to plan. Yeah, things happen. Yeah, <laughs> life. Uh, but we were so glad to be back on the West Coast, Best Coast and see more birds we missed when we didn't really know what we were doing with birding. <laughs> Um, so far, we've already gotten an all-time all lifer, which was a red-throated loon at the Cove in Seaside, Oregon, um, which is a super cool bird that I, I was pretty sure I thought we had, but I guess we didn't. No, I guess we didn't. And I've gotten five state lifers at this point, and Eric's gotten four state lifers. Somehow, I've never listed a rock pigeon in Oregon. I, don't, I guess I just avoided them. I guess. Yeah. Or maybe just did incomplete lists, just left them off every time. <laughs> I don't count them as birds. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, so we're definitely planning on continuing the podcast, but we wanted to let everyone know that with our new lives in Oregon, we are significantly busier than we expected that we'd be. We're trying to enhance the family business, and we don't really have weekends to do a lot of travel <laughs> right now. Ho hopefully that will get things settled and that'll be a little change a little bit. So bear with us a little bit. The next couple episodes might not be perfect. Super far. <laughs> <laughs> but our next stop is the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. It's just like two weeks away. And we are stoked to be, to be going back this year. Um, the Rio Grande Festival is just, it's a blast. Uh, there are lots of awesome people attending and guiding this year, and we're going to hopefully bring back some great material for our next two episodes for you guys. Yeah, so we won't have to worry about not having weekends. So we'll have have a little bit of material built up. Because we're going to go <laughs> not sleep in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, no sleeping. Cha-cha is like crazy! <laughs> <laughs> and also, we have finally done it. And booked our trip to Ecuador. Right at the end of the wire. Right at the end. So <laughs> so we're going to be heading that way um, down to Ecuador uh, November 28th um, with a one-day stop in Panama. Woo! Panama. A yeah. little bit of burning in Panama, hopefully. I think eight hours. We have an eight-hour layover. Eight-hour layover. Yeah, so, we'll so five hours of burning. Get out of, the, get out of the airport, do a little burning, get back. We're coming for you, Canopy Lodge. Yeah, so we're uh, super excited to go and explore a new country. Yeah, so thank you guys all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something new. Yeah. Um, hope you learned a lot about bird banding and we'll look forward to your next opportunity to go banding. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to, to us. Um, if you see us at the Rio Grande Valley Festival, hit us up. Come say hi. Um, give you a business card. 
<laughs> yeah, I think we're out of stickers. Yeah, pretty much. We have to order some more. Um, or, you know, if you guys are ever out on the Oregon coast, come find us. We're out here. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram, on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. And I do want to just clarify that Eric is spelled with a K. It's E E R I K. Oh, yeah. I don't know if we've ever clarified that with anyone. No, but I think, you know, you probably have gotten a lot of emails, but people are spelling it with a C. Probably. Yeah. This is I'm probably gonna... super popular with a C. It's probably going <laughs> to, you know, open a, a floodgate. <laughs> um, so tell us what you hated. Tell us what you like. Share us with your friends and help us build a following. So thank you all. Yeah. Thanks for listening. The way you can know something is um, a hatchier is if they have a fault bar going across all their flight feathers. Because that would mean that all those feathers were coming in at the same time. Like he can't, he can't molt all his feathers at the same time because he still has to be able to fly around.